0: Sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is.
1: We want to be evidence
0: based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is
1: every part of every clinical decision that we make.
0: And what it
1: is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say.
0: So my name is Taylor Brown from SPA's Early Career Reference Group and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Andy Smith. Andy is a speech pathologist who spent much of her career working with people with intellectual disabilities in both the UK and Australia. Andy completed her PhD at the University of Sydney, investigating staff training for residential care staff who worked with adults with intellectual disability and challenging behaviour. She's currently working as a lecturer and researcher at the University of Sydney um, and doing a Fun, exciting project in Vietnam, and a bit of a fun fact. Andy actually taught me my disability subject when I was at university. So nice to talk to you again,
1: Andy. No
0: worries.
1: Nice to talk to you too. It's always great to see to catch up with people years after you taught them. So
0: I know, especially when I now work in disability. I know. Um, now you have a lot of experience in the disability <laughs> sector, much more than me. Um, why are you so passionate about this area of speech pathology?
1: I think I've been thinking about that because we talked about this as a possible question for the podcast Um, I started off I learned I became a speech pathologist in the UK in the 1980s and in those days in the UK Mm. speech pathology was a kind of it was a girly profession that you went into for a few years so that you could be this nice caring helpful lady who would help children to talk before you had a family of your own And that wasn't me. Um, And somebody persuaded me, I think my sister persuaded me that I should really just do one year of a job. Um, And I got one of those jobs in the UK where it's a mixed bag. So what happens is you have, I don't know, three days a week when you're in a community clinic and for three months you work in acute hospital and then for three months you work in a special school and for three months you work in something else so that you've got your stable base while you're getting your kind of skills, but you've got those little tasters of more specialist subjects. I got into that special school and I thought, this is me. It's Mm. so much fun. And then I applied for a job in a special school and I didn't get it. And they came to me afterwards and they said, look, we know... um, you were fantastic, but the person who interviewed was better than you. Um, And so but we do have another job, it's in an adult disability setting. And I said, Oh, no, 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 I don't think I ever want to work in adult disability. And they said, Well, you said that about child disability six months ago, if you remember, maybe give it a go. (laughs) So I took it for a year. um, And I was really scared. I was scared of adults, they were big, and they were unpredictable. And but what I discovered was that working as part of a multi multi-disability team in the UK, of, which is called a learning difficulties or learning disability team, was just the best. And I got on with them and we had fun and the, we, we weren't looking for perfect answers. Being creative, being different, going about it in an innovative way was celebrated um mm. rather than kind of like well this is how we do it and i always describe it as kind of you know counting to 90 percent accuracy it's like yeah i'm going to count to 90 percent. and students who write for me in um, reports we're going to measure this tonight and i'm going no 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 we're not going to measure it tonight not in disability 90%. you're not not yeah. a disability you know what if it's working keep doing it right yeah um and that for me I think fits much more with how I see the world which is try something see how it goes and I think that fits for me with a disability setting much more than it did in a more traditional speech pathology setting
0: yeah okay and did you find that experience continued once you got to Australia um
1: yes I arrived I I, the reason I came to Australia was because I married an Aussie Okay, Um, and he and I just spoke of this just last week. It's 25 years since we met, which is really interesting. Um, And I had no intentions of coming to Australia. It was not on my agenda Um, and found myself here. And there am I. And I'm going, Okay, what do we do? Well, disability. And at that time, there were very few disability jobs in New South Wales and the disability jobs that there were were all graded at grade one. There were no senior grades, and the therapists who worked in what was then called Docs became Dadac, then became Adac, um, and then became the the NDIS. The NDIS, yes. They, um, the therapists who worked there, had really fought for senior grades to be created, and I basically arrived, applied for this job within six months of my arriving. And got it because I'd been doing a senior graded job in England and there were no senior graded jobs in Australia. I got one of the first two in the state Um, and so that was that was somewhat tricky because I was a bit of an outsider to start with and I'd come in Um, but really interestingly what happened was Lindy McAllister who was teaching at the University of Sydney was on my interview panel And she called me up and said, come and have coffee with me at um, the University of Sydney and trek out to Lidcombe and see what you think. And she persuaded me that I was going to be quite lonely. I didn't have those social networks, those work networks here. And I was taking on one of the first senior jobs in the state. So she said, why didn't I come along and do a master's degree? Um, Because I would meet some other people and it would give me some peers. Um, and as I said to Lind- Lindy the other day, the rest is history. So I did a master's, had two children, converted to a PhD, had another child, um, finished now my you PhD. you teach many
0: people all about but, disability. And
1: now I teach many people all about disability. And Sydney Uni feels like home. Yeah. Because I've been part of Sydney Uni since my very early days in Australia, and it really is thanks to Lindy. So it's interesting that she and I are working together again now.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a, I guess, a big story and seems to be a story that happens a lot in disability of people go, oh, I don't think I can do that. Yeah. And then they end up there and then they go, actually, this is great. I think
1: for me, one of my big life lessons, and I do say this to cohorts of students sometimes, is um, don't say never, never say never. Try things, be willing to give it a go, because I think that the things that you give a go sometimes they're the things that actually change your life.
0: Mm, because I think traditionally the disability sector has this reputation of being quite complex or quite overwhelming, particularly for those who are early in their career. Um, and I like, I certainly remember feeling that way sometimes. And even though now I work in a job in disability that I love, so I think that's a really important message for some of our early career clinicians to hear. But it's okay to give it a go, you might be surprised.
1: I think it is okay to give it a go. I think um, it is overwhelming, it can be overwhelming. I agree with you and I think people need to know that going in. Um, I also think that sometimes the biggest challenges in life are the ones that give us the biggest returns. But the most important message of, of all that I want to say to you about being a new grad and coming into a disability setting is supervision, right? Um, and that is one of the other things that I do in my spare time is I, I do clinical supervision for um, people in disability settings, whether it's one client that I'm really struggling with and I don't know where else to turn um, or whether it's ongoing supervision um, or mentoring. And I've done all of them. I've done paid. I've done unpaid. I've done short term. I've done long term. I've done super direct clinical supervision and mentoring. Um, mm. And I think you in a disability setting you need people around you that you can turn to and go I'm stuck I don't know what to do Mm. and people that you trust will not look down on you and go oh you silly thing how can you not know what to do but will actually take you through it Um, and I think that's really important and I think that finding a supervisor or a mentor if you're working in a disability setting particularly if you're relatively isolated is absolutely vital
0: and do you think it's it's realistic for early career speeches to be asking for that in provided by their workplace that the workplace is paying for it or organizing it or there's a senior who's providing it
1: i think that's really complicated in an ndis world Um, and i again have had it both ways i've had private practices who've said to me I can't supervise this student, this student, this therapist, new grad who's really struggling and I'm happy to pay you to do it. Okay, right through to clinicians themselves who say um, I'd like to do it and I'd like I'm happy to pay you. Or could we negotiate something that's somewhere in between? Um, And I am currently employed by an organisation and I employ I supervise all of their clinicians. Um, and mm. the, the agency employs me, the organisation employs me to do that. And we do that in small groups, two or three therapists together via Zoom. Um, for people who've been qualified more than two years, we give them monthly. If you've been qualified less than two years, then you would get either weekly or fortnightly, depending on where you're at. Um, and they pay me to do that. The organisation yeah, does.
0: So, okay. So there's a lot of different models that might yeah. suit different situations. Um, and you touched on telling there, Andy, about the NDIS. And I I guess it's fair to say the disability arena yep. in Australia has seen a huge amount of change in the last five years um, with the rollout of NDIS. And it's meant that there's a shift in the way, like not only the way we deliver services, but the scope of presentations we might see um, and what speech pathologists are expected to do um, working under this. Yep. What do you think in your with your experience are some of the, big challenges for clinicians with this change and this shift and how can they maybe overcome them? Look, I think it's really interesting because I
1: think if you'd have looked at this, I don't know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, disability would have been the, the, um, the poor relation, the thing that people didn't want to do, right? If you did it, if you couldn't do anything else or if, or if you were really unusual and kind of quirky, a bit like I was. <laughs> um, these days, I think disability is where the money is. And the NDIS is, is behind that. So private practitioners who would not remotely have thought about wanting to work with people with a disability, and if they did, they would have been relatively mild, um, are now taking on more complex cases because there is a demand. Um, I think it's fantastic that there is money to pay for people, adults with severe disabilities who previously probably wouldn't have got a great deal of service. The fact that the NDIS now has money that can be allocated towards um, clinical services, I think is absolutely fantastic. But what it means is that there are clinicians who are not so confident in the disability um, range of practice area who find themselves working with clients that are very challenging. If you if this continues, and we never know because governments change things all the time, but it, you know, if the NDIS is still here in a very similar format to it is now, 10 years from now, anybody who graduates from uni this year or last year will actually be okay in disabilities because they will have learnt about it. They will have learned about the NDIS. They will have seen clients on placement when they were students and they will go into it saying, I know what to do in disabilities because that's how I was taught. I think the people who qualified five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, definitely won't have got that experience at um, a student level. I was going to say an undergrad level, but whether you're a master's or an undergrad, won't necessarily have got that experience as a student. They may be really confident and competent at what they do, which may have been private practice with a lot of children with language disorders and fluency disorders. And now they're finding themselves taking on people with a disability and maybe they didn't get
0: that training when they were Mm. at uni to that extent. So it's almost like a bit of a happy accident, that because it's more mainstream (laughs) for clinicians, it's therefore more mainstream for students and they're coming out with the experience ready to do it. Yeah, I think so. But I also think that as an
1: education sector, our job is to respond to what's going on in society, whatever that is. And I could, just looking at Covid-19, um, there are now speech pathology students graduating for whom telepractice is a given right? because of Covid-19. Um, three years ago, if you'd have said to somebody, oh, yeah, you could do disabilities, you know, work with a client with a disability, you could do that over Skype. Everybody would have laughed. Um, and if you so, said it twelve months ago. I think well, a lot I, of people would have laughed. I'm I'm kind of giving myself a good leeway here. <laughs> but if what I'm saying is, we have to respond to what's happening in society. What's happening in society right now is COVID, which impacts service delivery. I think there are some other things that are happening in society too. I think there's going to be some real shakeup in aged care. Um, not only related to COVID nineteen and what's happening right now, but actually to do with what's been happening in aged care for a little while. And I think if you look at somebody like Mary Woodward, who's working in that um, youth justice um, sector, there are jobs being created, and that comes out of changes in society, changes in research. Um, we as a society have to change according to what's happening in our environment, and as clinicians as as carers in that sector we have to respond and as educators educating the clinicians of tomorrow we have to respond and so i do think that it's not so much that it's a happy accident as actually it's a really good thing because yeah. people adults with a disability got a really raw deal 10 years ago
0: yeah Well, it's great. Let's see where we are in five more years or ten more years. Now, children and adults with intellectual disabilities often have maybe accompanying diagnosis or a very diverse range of communication presentations and skills. So that can make assessment a tricky process. Um, What are some of your favourite assessment tools or strategies or activities?
1: So I have this thing called a decision tree. Okay? And the reason I have this is I used to teach assessment in a very linear way. It was PowerPoint and it was slide one, then slide two, then slide three, then slide four. And then somehow you've got to go back to slide one when you get to a different group of people and people got lost. So I drew this as a kind of map um, and this is now how I teach um, and this is really how I think. And so what, we, what I talk about is the fact that you have, there are four parts to assessment. The first is your gathering of initial information. So you might be doing a case history, you might be interviewing a parent. It might just be a phone call or you might work in a service that's got some kind of intake form that gives you that basic information. Fundamentally, what you're going to be thinking about is where does this person sit along a continuum of intentionality? Is, that, is this somebody who's an unintentional communicator? Are they intentional but not yet symbolic? Or are they symbolic? And so step one is, is formulating some idea about where you're at from your initial conversations with people. You then need to profile that person. And the way that you're going to profile them is using one of those published tools. And there are different profiling tools that are published Um, and that are useful for people at different levels of intentionality. So, for example, you might be using... the communication matrix for somebody who's an unintentional communicator or intentional but not yet symbolic. But you wouldn't probably be using that. You might be using the AAC profile, for example, as your profiling tool for somebody who is um, an AAC user who is symbolic. So the first thing I do is have this lineup of all these different um, profiles that clinicians can select from, and knowing which one works for which level of communicator. So it's what you were saying before, Taylor, about, you know, that, that the continuum is enormous, and that you can have people with very different skill sets. Well, you know, you need to do a profile, but which one is it? And yeah. a profile is really just a list of questions that you ask somebody, but the person who wrote the questions is an expert in the field. Yep. And that makes it more efficient than you as an inexperienced clinician or a new grad going, oh, what do I need to ask this
0: person? I think I can ask about this, yeah. I have a question, Andy. With yep. the that scale of uh, where are they in intentionality, how does that fit with this idea of presuming com- competence?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, okay, so presuming competence in and of itself is a really good idea. Okay. The idea is that we should not assume that people can't do things. We should go in with an open mind, assuming that they can do things. But presuming competence has overlapped with um, some difficult concepts, such as um, facilitated communication, Okay, and facilitated communication is where somebody who is presumed to be nonverbal has a facilitator who will hold their arm or their elbow over an alphabet board and they will spell out words. And there is a lot of um, politics about FC about and there are court cases and people who've been jailed. there's some really, really interesting court cases that have happened in the last few years in America. And FC is something that all organizations around the world who work with um, people who are AAC users have put out position papers. There's one by Spa, There's one by Asher. There's one by Isaac. There are position papers from around the world saying there is no evidence and there are dangers in using facilitated communication. So when we start thinking about presuming competence, I suppose the extreme of presuming competence is facilitated communication. I think that we shouldn't be presuming competence, we should be um, pursuing solid assessment findings. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. We start off with an open mind saying, yes, I believe this person is capable of using AAC. I believe this person is capable of lots of things. But our assessment has to drill down into what that means. And we have to be doing it in an
0: ethical way. And that's really
1: important.
0: Mm, so it's quite a balancing act between this idea of, okay, assessing where they're at, getting that profile, also going, yet we believe that they might have the skills to progress, but not going too far on that. Yep. Yeah. And so my second term, the first part is my case, case
1: um, information. Then we have profiling. The third and really important part is observation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we know that carers... Um, don't have an accurate view of how somebody communicates or how capable they are. We might have a carer who thinks that they under, the person understands everything. We might have a carer who is at the opposite end and thinks that the person can't do anything for themselves and that I need to make those decisions for them. I need to decide what I know what his favorite, whatever it is, is, and I'm going to decide that. So there is this balance when we're using those profiles are called informant reports, and the information is only as robust as the informant and their understanding of what is communication. So we have to, first of all, be training um, communication partners and, and supporting them to understand communication. But we also have to, I believe, triangulate so that you're not only looking at what the carers are telling us, but you're also looking at what you are seeing with your own eyes. And that's where observation comes in. And of course, my tool, which is published and available, and I'm not going to remotely advertise it on a podcast because I, I, I really wouldn't want to. But the, you know, there is that tool. As far to my knowledge, there is no other published tool that structures observation of people, um, particularly at the severe um, level of intellectual disability. Yeah. So,
0: and as you said, that observation part is often so critical in figuring out. Maybe if there's behaviours going on, why those behaviours are happening or what the story is and what that person is actually communicating every day.
1: And I think you talked at the beginning about, you know, students, new grads being overwhelmed. I think there's a whole, if you imagine that as a student, you go into a situation, you see an adult who seems to not be understanding what's going on in his environment at all. Um, The parents or the carers or the staff members are telling you that he understands everything or that he understands nothing. And you are this junior inexperienced person. You don't know a lot about disabilities. You're looking at people who've known this person for a very long time and they know him very well it's really overwhelming you're balancing all of that and that's why i think having a tool that structures what you're looking at what you're measuring what you're counting what things are you really teasing apart as to what's going on allows clinicians to be more confident about about what their decision making is around um, a person with a disability
0: great thanks for that andy um, I believe, Andy, that you helped develop the team taxonomy framework. Can you tell me what that is? I haven't heard of it.
1: Ah, okay. Um, I didn't help develop it. I did develop it. Um, <laughs> there you go. You developed it's, it's the mine. team taxonomy framework. Uh, there we go. Okay. So the te- what happens really for me, I find – so it kind of leads really nicely from the assessment <laughs> conversation into the goal-setting conversation, which is you've got all this assessment data, now what? Okay, and what are your goals going to be? My experience was that particularly students, but also new grads, um, very much this person is an unintentional communicator. My therapy is going to be that they're going to become intentional or they're intentional, but not yet symbolic. My goal is going to be they're going to become they're going to learn some words. They're going to talk. And in what time frame are you imagining? Oh, six to eight weeks. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. So I wanted. to. And therefore, if you turn around and go, what if this person never actually becomes symbolic? And then the students or the new grads are kind of stuck because they're like, well, what's my role then? Hmm. And so I wanted people to start thinking about all the things that you could do that would add value to this person's life, even if they did not change along that continuum.
0: I feel like you're inside my head right now, Andy. I feel like I've had this exact... Go around in my own head.
1: (laughs) Okay, one second then. Let me find you the other one. Um, um, There we go. Okay, this one has been published in JCP SLP, so you should check it out, Taylor. Um, And yes, this will be in your head, partly because this is how I taught you. Um, Okay, so this is very similar. Doesn't it look very similar? It's the decision tree about goal making.
0: So, Andy is, showing, Andy is showing me right now a bit of a scaffold of the team framework and how it works.
1: Yeah. So, and for, for the rest of you who are listening, if you want to look at it, it is in that JCP SLP article from, I think, December 2019 from memory. Um, so... What I wanted to do was to take that same continuum that's in my assessment decision tree and think about goals. So at the very bottom here, we have this goal, which is that the person is going to move along the continuum. We're going to move from being um, intentional to symbolic. Okay. But I've got all these other things. What about the other things that we do? So I started to encourage students to think about about three other things and they relate to the to the word team. So T is for training. (coughs) E is for expanding. A is for augmenting and M is for moving. And if we leave the M till the end, and this is what I encourage people to do, just leave the M till the end. And let's start off with some of these other things. So if our goal is that we want the communication partners to provide a consistent communicative environment, then we can train them how to do that. What will that do? Well, that will actually allow the person with a disability to have predictable, consistent communicative signals around them. And that will improve their behavior, perhaps their quality of life, their understanding of even just the routine of your day and what's going to happen next. So for example, so training could be at that level, it could be right through to training a communication partner to use an AAC system. When we think about, again, students, particularly new grads, often say, okay, this is, this is a person with a disability. I need to do AAC. I need to augment. And I'm going, before we do that, let's have a look at what they're doing really well. right? What could we take that they're currently doing well and expand? That might be make it bigger, make it more often, make it larger vocabulary, make it more of what they're doing. Mm. Or it could be more people. If we know that something's working really well at home, Could we bring that into school so that the teachers at school are doing exactly what the parents at home are doing successfully, but they're now doing it in a new environment? So for me, these are we train communication partners. We expand what people are doing successfully already. We augment as in we do add in something new. okay? and potentially our goal is to move somebody along the continuum, but it might not be just that.
0: And potentially only because we've done the T, E and A parts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to get to the
1: M part. It's usually because we've done the other bits first.
0: Exactly. It kind of gives um a bit of, I guess, structure and shape to that idea of NDIS and capacity building. How are we building their capacity through yes. training, through expanding, through augmenting, and then maybe yep. through moving?
1: Yeah. So I am doing this workshop um, coming up for Speech Pathology Australia Next week, I think, um, and the, it's there are two parts to the workshop. The first is about assessment, um, and really takes participants through my assessment decision making tree. The second is about goal and inter- goals and interventions, and we start with the team framework, and then look at which interventions are evidence based, and um, should we be using. Um, and really identifying that we, the things we should be using are the ones that have evidence of their effectiveness. Um, and then I bring it right back, this is the very end of my two day workshop, to talking about so, what does that mean? We have to take what somebody's currently doing as their current performance. We have to make judgments about what we think is their capability or their capacity, okay? And in the middle is therapy. So intervention comes between performance and capability. In order to achieve your capability, you have to grow. And you grow from your current performance to achieve your capability, largely, I believe, through um, intervention.
0: Mm, Which I guess segues us nicely in that we've talked about assessment, we've talked about goal setting, and I realise this is a big question and a big area, but do you have any top tips or things you think early career speeches need to know about intervention with people with a disability?
1: I don't know. Um, Okay, I'm coming back to what you said a little while ago, which is it's a very broad spectrum of people, okay? Um, And I suppose something that might be an appropriate intervention for somebody who's verbal but not intelligible would be very different from somebody who's not an intentional communicator. Absolutely. I suppose the key thing is that I actually don't care if the client can communicate beautifully with me at all. I need them to be communicating with the people in their environment every day. And coming to speech therapy sessions or even being able to do it beautifully one-on-one with me may or may not actually improve their quality of life or their interactions with the people around them. So I suppose my top tip is really Focus on what's happening every day in everyday environments and make it happen. It needs to be something that can easily be embedded into everyday life. If you, um, one of the things I often do with families is if I want them to do something, whether it's sign language or visuals, is I say, do it in the bath. Okay, make it, laminate it, stick it on the wall in the bathroom because you're going to be in the bathroom with your kid while they are in the bath pretty much always. It's good quality time. The child's having fun. You can splash. You can make it fun. You can practice all those things you've learned about in speech therapy. Don't sit down at a table and do therapy, but do it as part of everyday activities that are enjoyable and do it, you know, Five minutes here, five minutes there, five minutes here from a parent is much more important than what they can do with a clinician. I, my, one of the best things a fat parent ever said to me was she was walking through the supermarket with her child sat in the trolley, she was pointing things out and talking to him and she stopped and she went, Oh my goodness, I've turned into Andy. Um and I'm going, Yes,
0: yes got you it. have
1: you've got you it. it and it needs to be them doing it and i think we are at risk of as clinicians of disempowering parents children will do things with us because you're the therapist who they don't see every day and you've got that toy and that toy's really good fun and the parent goes why does he do it so nicely when he goes to see the therapist but when at home with me he won't And I'm like, let's we need to flip that. We actually need that. I'm not I'm not the person he wants to see Mm. Um, that he wants to do it with you, with mum. I want to change what you're doing so that interactions become positive and meaningful. And I want to break that that cycle. If we do it the other way, we really are at risk of disempowering parents who then think that there's something wrong with them because he won't do it with them. But he will do it with this lovely young speechy who's come along.
0: So it's really about making those activities functional so the parents then are, are empowered, yeah. can do them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Great. Thank you so much, Andy. I feel like you've imparted much wisdom over the past little while. Is there anything else you want to add, I guess, to finish us off or you feel like you've covered a lot? Um,
1: I feel like I've covered a lot. Mm. I think... I suppose I think, and I don't know if this is because I taught you some years ago, I don't know if this is something you'll recognise. I think students find it quite hard to get their heads around my subject when I teach it. I don't shy away from it. It is challenging. It is confronting. I do force them to really think about some of the things that are really difficult. And I think they don't like it. And I think they find it difficult, maybe don't really want to work in disability, but when they get out there and they have the tools to be able to do it. So I sometimes think that teaching disabilities for me is a little frustrating, if, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I know I can kind of relate to what you're saying. I guess it didn't really all click to me until I had a placement in it. We were talking earlier that 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 was the moment when I went, oh, OK, that that's this thing. And it actually fits. And I actually have all this knowledge about it, even though I didn't feel like I did.
1: And I don't know how I get. I don't know how. That's my constant challenge is how do I make it real for students so that they they know and they say, yes, this is what I need. I need this information. This is going to help me clinically. Um, And I don't know. I don't know. That for me is my stumbling block in terms of teaching is I I, what I would love it if students went away going. That was great. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's difficult in a disability with disability content.
0: Potentially, they reflect on it a few years later, and then they realize. Hopefully. Hopefully. And if people want to get in touch with you, Andy, have you got yep. social media? Have you? What's the best way to get in touch?
1: Um, I have. I am on Twitter. Um, I think I'm just Andy Smith on Twitter, if you look me up. I am also at the University of Sydney, and you can definitely look me up there. Um, and yes, I'm always happy for people to be in touch. I have two other things I'm going to tell you briefly. So, um, my assessment tool is called Mosaic, and there is a Mosaic has a website um, which is mosaiccommunication.com.au, and you can always be in touch with me through there. But we're actually about to start a really interesting project. We are um, revising the pragmatics profile.
0: And so the pragmatics
1: profile is something that was written in the UK by people who taught me in the 1980s. Um, And it's it's quite old and it's now out of print. But there are a number of recent studies um, that have actually showed that it's still one of the most popular tools in a disability setting. um, And it is out of print. And unavailable. So I actually approached um, the authors, one of whom has now passed away, but the other one and I, we are um, we're running a Delphi panel, which is happening next week, actually, um, and we have some of the leading. So, a Delphi panel basically calls together a group of experts and says, let's as a team rewrite this tool. So, together as a group, we rewrite a tool um, and it's very um, structured and um, anonymous, and so people can say what it is they want to say. So, we're about to do that project, and um, it will then be an online tool that will be available. Um, free of charge that you can type in the answers to a computer. And so on my mosaic site at the moment, I also have the pre verbal communication schedule, the PVCS, and that lives on the mosaic site, again, free of charge it was out of print. So I just made contact with the publishers and agreed that we could put it up there. Um, so yeah, it's my my website is a useful place to look at a, a number of tools, because as well as Mosaic, which is mine, I also um, have some sort of I rescued, if you like, tools that are out of print that people still want and still use. And we're making them available there so that they're They are freely available to people, which I think is really important.
0: Yeah, I have definitely downloaded some of them. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time, Andy, especially on behalf of us early career speeches.
1: (laughs) No worries. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.